Hello, listeners. Today on Cathedral Talk, we're going to be doing something just a little bit different. David, Zach, and I are going to be taking a short break, and instead we're going to be publishing an episode that was recorded long ago in the early days of the pandemic, in mid-2020. This episode was one of our trial runs when we were trying to figure out if we could do this podcasting thing. You'll probably notice that the sound quality isn't quite as good as it normally would be, but nevertheless we felt that the episode was worthy of publication. And never fear, we expect to be back soon enough, discussing the latest developments with the restoration at Notre Dame. talk today about cityscapes and how, you know, we've got many wonderful cities across the globe. In America, we all think of New York City as probably our biggest metropolis. Of course, we've got all these other cities um, that have really surpassed New York these days. Uh, I really should have brought up uh, a list of populations, but New York may be the biggest in the United States, but it's certainly not the biggest in the world. You know, I was thinking the other day when I look at a photograph of New York City, that, you know, it almost feels antiquated to me now. If I look at a, a photo of New York versus a photo of Shanghai or Tokyo, there's just so much more non-cubicle or rectangular buildings. And New York has so many rectangular buildings. Now, clearly they're trying to um, change that. But at the same time, I feel like they have a long ways to go. When was the last time you walked downtown Manhattan? Granted, you've never walked to Shanghai, so like it's not a perfectly, it's not an apple to apples, but absolutely. I, I I admit I am a very Eurocentric kind of guy, mostly just because I took a lot of Latin in high school and wanted to keep <laughs> going back to Rome and Paris, but um, and London. Uh, but I think the last time I was in Manhattan was probably, I th- I think a music concert for college where we, we did a choir tour and we were in New York City at some church. So we're talking a decade here. Yeah, it's been a... Uh, oh, wait a minute. There has there was one more time. I remember there was a time four years ago that I was there for a weekend and I was at a bell ringing competition. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, I had forgotten about that. Um, it's but there, you know I could count on one hand the number of times I've been. But it sounds like you are you're trying to get at a sense of like when you say like a cityscape, a photo from afar rather than the feeling when walking downtown. You you it's specifically you think the look of the city is what is what seems antiquated when you look at the texture overall of the city. Yeah, I mean a lot of the buildings just look like they're the sort of the same concept of a cubicle rectangular building over and over again. I mean, even the UN building, right? It's just a rectangle sticking out of the ground. Of course, the glorious Empire State Building is the building that's right there in the middle. And that's a very elegant building, but it's also very old. That does feel old to me. I agree. It, but it feels old and it's got very jagged edges to it. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great way to get people from New York to send us pictures of architecture that they are proud of <laughs> inside of their city to prove us wrong. I, I mean, in early in the podcast, you know, take a random city, start bashing it. It's a great way to build an audience. Yep. Yeah, the biggest one in the U.S. as well. Next week, we'll talk about Pittsburgh and all the things that suck about Pittsburgh. 
Each each week of this podcast will be a different city that we trash. Yeah, sure. Why not? Is that the premise here? Yep, yep. Next week's Pittsburgh. But I wanted to go back to the Empire State Building because um, the Empire State Building is one of my favorite buildings. I had this child's book when I was in uh, elementary school. It was like a it was a child's book of diagrams. And it was comparisons and ratios and proportions of all things in both the artificial man-made world and nature. It showed like giant redwoods versus the Great Pyramids. And it showed the Empire State Building versus the Eiffel Tower versus the Sears Tower. Sorry, Willis Tower. Mm. But I remember thinking that, man, out of all the skyscrapers that were built up until that time when that book was published and the tallest at that time was the Sears Tower, uh, the Empire State Building was the most elegant. At that time, when the World Trade Center Twin Towers were still around, I remember not liking them very much for just how simplistic they were next to the Empire State Building. But eventually, you know, I started to have some fear that the Empire State Building is going to get, you know, just overshot by more taller and taller and taller buildings. I feel like the Empire State Building was built to be the center of attention. When you look at a picture of the Empire State Building, it's like this building is supposed to be in the middle at the center. It is the focal point. I can attest that still feels true when you're flying into the city. Uh, I forget if that'd be, I guess that'd be JFK. Yeah. It's been a while since I've flown into New York, particularly at night when you're outside looking at all the lights. even, Even despite all the other skyscrapers, it is definitely the one that pulls your eye. And with the Empire State Building, you know, while it's tall, it is not nearly as tall as some of the more modern skyscrapers that have been built very recently. Obviously, the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa, is, I think, basically twice the height of the Empire State Building right now. And, you know, if you see a side-by-side comparison, that Burj Khalifa would just dwarf the Empire State Building. And New York is, you know, an evolving city. They are trying to build more skyscrapers to, you know, stay innovative and competitive. And I feel that's going to be a real problem for the Empire State Building because the Empire State Building was meant to be like this focal point. But if it keeps getting surrounded by other buildings that surpass it in different ways, I feel the Empire State Building is going to look really out of place. I actually sent you both a couple links here. And uh, the first one that I sent is of a building that was planned, was never actually originally built like this, but it was something that was considered. It's a rendered image of a proposed skyscraper that was close to being built, very close to the Empire State Building, just a couple blocks away. And it's not a rectangle, but it is a it is a much like more boxy building than the very sort of elegant, sloping Empire State Building. And the two were definitely built from radically different eras. And I want to know, what what do you two think about the juxtaposition of these two? I think if you're looking for a city that is trying to evolve and is trying to innovate, as you uh, mentioned before, you should try to have less emphasis on using the Empire State Building as the focal point, because then that inherently sort of stifles your ability to add things like this um, this office building that you were in the first link. I mean, you want to be able to to create things that aren't necessarily the same time aren't necessarily the same design. New York City isn't some uh, hamlet that has had a single city planner to figure out exactly what the city should look like from here in perpetuity, that this is actually a good thing uh, that it allows for growth visually 
emotionally, et cetera. Well, and the skyline of New York City, I mean, it's iconic because of both the Empire State Building and at the time, of course, the Twin Towers, and then, of course, replaced by the new World Trade Center to this day. But I think that the skyline has had a lot of debate attached to it. And there's been some talk about, should we build the skyscrapers close to the Empire State Building and just let it build up around it? Or should we push them into different sectors of the city? And I I find this question so interesting because this is a question that European cities have been dealing with for 100 years. I feel like this is the first time that an American city has had to cope with how do you preserve old architecture with modern architecture when the two don't go very well together? Obviously, Europe has had this problem for a much longer time with cathedrals from the Middle Ages or, you know, Parliament, which is very Victorian building that's meant to look Gothic in London. And so a lot of those other cities have zoned the more modern construction to be in different sectors so they don't clash. But I don't really think there's much of that going on in New York. You know, you've got the older architecture like the Empire State Building, and then you've got the newer architecture that could pop up right next to it. I mean, the city that we're from, they have very draconian rules over the type of buildings that can exist and and the height limitations. And uh, I mean, in in Washington, you know, there's the whole rules that you can't be taller. It's uh, you can't be taller than the it's not the tip of the capital, is it? Yeah, it is. It's the tip of the capital. Okay. The dome. That's one way to to deal with not allowing modern construction to uh, prevent it from coming in at all. And yeah, frankly, that's that's probably going a bit too far. I think DC could stand to have some more innovative, taller structures, um, more in the White House region, farther away from the Capitol building, probably. But uh, and it still would be be fine for the skyline. Uh, it's not like you can't see the White House from anywhere, anyways, for the most part, unless you're on the ground. So if you do the the gallery place, metro center sort of area, uh, uh, I'd be totally fine with breaking some of those rules and uh, allowing for some things. I think what you're getting out of spacing things is important. And I think there just usually is ways to, to space it uh, appropriately. Mm-hmm. I think what I was trying to get at with my um, my statement about the city planners is that you're not going to be able to have an edict that can apply to all cities. Uh, Certainly Washington is going for or Washington, D.C. is going for a particular feel. What New York City is trying to accomplish is a dynamic, innovative space then you would want the sort of um, sort of the melting pot of America to be reflected in your architecture where you have very contemporary architecture that's sitting next to very old architecture that sort of the blending of architectural designs matching the blending of cultural histories. Washington, D.C. might not be going for the same feeling. Yeah. In uh, Boulder, you're not supposed to build uh, a building that obstructs someone's view of the Flatiron. So they're also going for a particular feel. And also there's a lot of open space designations inside the city as well. So that's also a very different feel. Or the holy wars they fight in San Diego to never obstruct anyone's view of the ocean. Exactly. So my brain went there too. Mm-hmm. So it all, it all depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I think in very particular, 
we were talking about in New York City. And I think having never lived there, uh, I feel totally comfortable speaking for everyone in the city <laughs> that it, a city that has the same population as like Colorado, Wyoming and Utah all combined. Do you have a little bit of hesitancy there, Zach, trying to talk for large populations of people? No. You don't think there's a problem with three white dudes in a basement representing large swaths of people? No, no, not not at all. That's <laughs> certainly there is no sarcasm in my voice. <laughs> None, not, not from you. Maybe from David, not from you. I think if you are one of the people that think that New York City should be a place of plurality, then that should also extend to its architecture and its skyline. Well, I, have, I often say that D.C. feels like the most European city that America has for the, the height limit restriction. And it literally actually is a European city because it was built by LaFont, who was a European city planner, I think. So one could expect that. I mean, DC has these large sort of streets that feel like European boulevards. And since I love Europe so much, obviously, I really like DC. But I do, you know, I do enjoy visiting New York and other places. But I, I do feel that New York is sort of at this inflection point where there's just enough new stuff coming in that it feels very different than what's already there. You have you have a very different impression of what uh, of what New York architecture is than I do cuz in my head it's always kind of felt like the wild west where it's just who can get the money and put it up here is a great place to center your business, you know, quote quote center of the world's economy. You don't have to believe that, but that's what a lot of a lot of businesses believe. Uh and you know th that that's different today than it was 20 years ago, but uh it's still it's just, I understand there's zoning laws and all that, but it still has felt like a lot of different things go in there just because it's New York. And in one way, that can be Zach's melting pot that he just referenced, but another way it can be kind of organized chaos uh, as well. And I think that has been surpassed by the Dubais of the world, which is mostly just Dubai, <laughs> uh, where that truly is the Wild West of the world and, and they'll just do whatever they can throw their money at. Yeah, those are, they feel orders of magnitude more Wild West than New York does. New York feels rather tame compared to the rest of those. And, you know, this, this also brings up an interesting side point. Um, why is it now that so many other nations have such taller buildings than the United States? I mean, it's been the last several times that the tallest building in the world was not in a United States building. It's like we sort of stopped after a point. Honestly, I don't know. Was it after 9-11? Uh, after 9-11, do we have a pause where we sort of said, maybe we shouldn't be building so many tall skyscrapers? Uh, whereas other nations were like, oh, we're going to go first now. Um, but I, I wonder if we're going to get back in the game. I really I do wonder, are we ever going to try to compete and go for that world's tallest building again? I mean, what does playing that game get you? Um, Tom's respect. That That's true. Probably not our dad's respect. That's <laughs> probably true. But my respect, I wouldn't even say respect. I'd say my my admiration. To reach for the stars with your building. Yeah, yeah. I have definitely always been a person who couldn't avoid the mantra of bigger is always better, taller is always better. So it's uh, it's definitely not true, but I have a hard time escaping that mindset. Well, you just have to look at your brother. Which is why he thinks I'm the better brother. Yeah. Yeah. You just walked right into that one, Tom. <laughs> yes, but, uh, okay. Our parents agree too. I'm going to take this moment to, to, to use it while Tom is incapacitated. 
I think there is a lot to be said for the fact that we have a lot more space. I think that's one of the things that's always been in America's uh, advantage is that European cities, even when we were or when America was being colonized, were pretty confined spaces because uh, that medieval design puts those very narrow buildings right next to each other. So when you when you go to America, you don't have that sort of legacy of the confined spaces and you can really take advantage or you can really nurture that rugged individualism when the next person, if you want to talk about the Wild West, is like miles away from you. Well, and for many decades, American cities, because, you know, again, we're the, you know, type A people that we are uh, for many decades, we said, you know, there's nothing here worth keeping. Let's just knock it down and build something better. And in Europe, you know, you, you can't go five feet without bumping into some tomb or ruins uh, underneath. You know, I think it was Rome where they keep trying. You don't, you don't get to steal my you don't get to steal my Rome anecdote. <laughs> I've been to uh, Rome, too, you know. I, yeah, but I was the one who, 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 who put this in your head. Uh, that it, in the Rome metro system, is, it's, it's my favorite in the world because it's just an X. It's just two lines going across the city. And the, and the reason that they can't do more is every time they try to dig, they hit more ruins. Yep, that's, that's pretty much what I was going to say. Uh, and now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Pick it up, Zach. <laughs> Again, it's what you're trying to accomplish in your city, right? If Rome wants to be um, the crypt keeper for the past then that's certainly incumbent upon them to, to fulfill that role. I'm not going to shame them for doing that. Um, me, personally, I'm much more like Kylo Ren in this regard. Is You have to let the past go. You have to kill it sometimes. <laughs> uh, oh, good. We both agree what the best Star Wars movie is. Yeah. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> the Phantom Menace. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, well, I have, We do not have the time for that this day. There is something my wife said she wanted to watch on TV. <laughs> and right now she's in the other room with her headphones and she's kind of a little um, persnickety that I took the only room that has decent acoustics. So she um, wants to watch the Phantom Menace. So no, well, we will, we'll come back to the star Wars at some point. I'm sure <laughs> the star Wars. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's incumbent on every city to sort of define what characteristics that they want to have for their own cities. I keep on hammering the, this point. New York can certainly do what it wants to to its own skyline. Oh yeah, Tom. Tom a point you were uh, saying earlier, and in, in that you're reflecting on when New York got out of the game, or not New York, when the U.S. got out of the game of building the tallest buildings, and not quite sure when that is, and, and that so many others have surpassed that. Uh, has Europe? been in that game in the past couple of decades as well? You know, I thought about going there, and then I said we don't have time. But now that you bring it up. Um, I, as far as I know, Europe has probably one of the lowest concentrations of tall skyscrapers there is, again, because they have so much, you know, multiple hundreds of years old edifices that are works of art, cathedrals, temples, uh, ruins. Is the London Shard the tallest in Europe now? Uh, I don't I don't have I can't back that up. It, it may be. It may not. It's the tallest be. in London, right? Yeah, it's the tallest. in. well, I mean, <laughs> Last I checked, it was. I'm, I'm, it certainly was for a while, if it isn't currently, but I think it is right now. Because w w one of my my questions for bringing it up is if Europe hasn't been in that game either. Gr granted, all the other things that you said that their history makes it a lot more complicated. But hey, labor laws. Like let, let, let's talk about that. Uh, 
Uh, Dubai is willing to do things to their workers that the U.S. is no longer willing to do, that it was willing to do in the past. And I mean, who knows? I don't I don't know what the labor li- laws were in the 1930s when, you know, we were building the Empire State Building. Right. Uh, probably not as good today. <laughs> not that things are great today, but, you know, uh, yeah, these are all. Th- again, I'm curious if we will never be in the game. Are we never going to try to build any taller buildings? The question I, I would have again is why? Like what? What does having the tallest building get you other than Tom's admiration? Because I think a lot of these places are doing it to get the press of building a very tall building when we don't need that press. It's true. Mm-hmm. Like I, I would not know what Dubai is, probably. I am not someone who follows world politics too much. And Dubai is a place I know because of the sorts of press that they have been gaining through the sorts of building projects they've done. Yeah. And they're, I mean, they've been trying to build a few more that are going to surpass the Burj Khalifa. I, I think they're stalled for this reason and that reason. But uh, the Burj Khalifa will not stay the world's tallest building forever. I mean, I, as, a, as an interesting footnote, I'm pretty sure the Burj Khalifa has been the world's tallest building for quite a while now. Like there was a period there where like I feel like every few years it was a new one. But then suddenly you just got to the Burj Khalifa, which was just whew, it was way taller than anything that came before it. And then it sort of just changed the whole game of like, well, now if we're going to do this, it's like a whole different level of commitment. And so it's probably a lot more intimidating than it used to be for a developer to say, we're going to really commit to do this. For a while, I assumed that when people talked about space elevators, they were talking about very tall buildings. Isn't it? I mean, I I thought a space elevator was just, maybe I'm wrong. I thought a space elevator was like a plane that could very easily get up into space and back without rocket fuel costs. I mean, you can build a space elevator that is attached to the ground. Really? Wait, what's a space elevator? Take it away, Zach. It's an elevator that goes into space. <laughs> what more do you <laughs> want, David? <laughs> so is it taller than the Burj Khalifa? Uh, the Burj Khalifa doesn't go into space. So it'd have to be. It would have to be, yeah. Okay. Uh, the Burj Khalifa, I believe, is slightly under a kilometer. Yeah, it's 829. Yeah, they're, they're working on a building that's supposed to be exactly a kilometer. Again, I heard that stalled, I think it was in Mecca. I'm going to get that wrong and I'm going to get yelled at. But the interesting thing I also remember is the, the people who built the Burj Khalifa, I think, are very much working on other projects to surpass the Burj Khalifa. So it's really a small subset of people that are even working on this stuff. I guess it takes the true crazies to really do it. Well, that makes, in connecting back to what we'll get more into on another episode is the knowledge of how to build a cathedral. How many people in the world at any given time, during the time when cathedrals were like at their height, which was granted several centuries, but how many people in the world actually knew how to build them? I mean, it's like the Apollo program. Sure. It's like after the Apollo program was over, how many people... Uh, really knew all the steps that were necessary to build a Saturn V rocket and launch it to the moon. We lost those people quite quick, and then we're having to re-figure that all out now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The second highest building in the world is an oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico. (laughs) Wait, what? Well, so so there you start to get into all those philosophical debates about what counts as a building and what doesn't count as a building. There was one, I think, projected plan of a building that it pretty much essentially looks like a building, but technically can't be counted as a building because the way it stays up is it's held by tethers that surround it. 
And it's like, in order for something to be a building, it must be freestanding without tethers. Okay. So for the oil thing, we're talking about including the part underwater. Uh, I don't know about that. Because it wouldn't just be shooting up way into the air for no reason, I think. Yeah, I don't know. My limited understanding of oil drilling. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. The last one I remember before the Burj Khalifa, and I know there's many steps in between it, but before the Burj Khalifa, I'm pretty sure was, no, I'm pretty sure I'm wrong. But the one I remember is the Petronas Towers, which I think are in Malaysia. You know, there's just various buildings that were just incrementally taller than a lot of the buildings we were used to in the 90s and the early 2000s. But suddenly the Burj Khalifa came and just rocked everybody's world. So um, this, is a, this is a period piece, and we, we live in interesting times. I, I just thought it'd be interesting to point out that Mulan recently came out on Disney+. Plus, and I have not seen it yet. Uh, I know my wife really wants to see it, uh, so we'll, I'm sure, at some point watch it. But I know this is one of those big budget Disney films, you know, one of the remakes of their classics that they've dumped a ton of money into, hoping to get a ton more money out of it. So, you know, it's clearly it was intended to be for the theater. And I'm just wondering, do you think people who watch it at home will be just as satisfied watching it as at home as opposed to if they had seen it for the first time in theater? You, you certainly can be for a certain type of movie. I think big budget blockbusters are not typically that type of movie, uh, that there is a experience of watching it in a crowd. Well, A, watching it in a crowd is always a different experience. B, even if you're in a movie theater all on your own, which I've done before and it's weird, still the effect of the booming sound and all that hits your emotions differently. Um, so if that's what your movie is striving to do, which I believe Mulan is aiming for, yeah, I think it will hit differently. Disney's cost structure for how they're trying to, to get their money back from this movie is also particularly interesting since it's, uh, uh, you have to have Disney plus, which is already a, a small monthly fee, but then you have to pay $30 to, I don't know if it's to buy or to rent. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> it must be buy, but buy defined as unlock access so long as you're paying for the subscription, I would guess. Do you remember the last movie you saw in a the theater? Uh, everything pre-COVID is a blur. I know, it's really hard. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, End game. I think for me, it was Knives Out. Which was a terrific movie. That must have been it for us. Did Star Wars come out last year? Yeah. Yeah. I forget if I saw Knives Out before or after. I think I saw Knives Out first and then Rise of Skywalker afterwards, which I saw twice disgustingly. Bad movie, Zach. Don't give me that face. <laughs> it has spaceships and it has explosions. What more do you want from Star Wars? Okay. Um, dangerous waters. <laughs> also, we are damn well not talking about Star Wars before we talk about Star Trek on this podcast. <laughs> I will say so right now that there is no way that I'm going to talk about the Millennium Falcon before I talk about the Enterprise. So do you think that the movie industry is a lot more halted than the TV industry? Because right now, I mean, nobody can film with COVID, can they? They still can, yeah. Uh, from my understanding, there are starting to be things popping up. Like, I, I don't know how it works, but... I've, I've heard of some things that I still are starting to be produced. Where there's money, there's a way. 
again, I just wonder if the whole Mulan thing is going to, if not completely torpedo the theater industry, if we are going to see some interesting reductions or at least adjustments to the number of movies that come out per year or, you know, I don't know, less competition, maybe. I'm just I, I feel like that it could be the beginning of the end. But that's just me. The the thing that comes to mind is I remember because for a while I paid very close attention to things like TV ratings and box office numbers and things like that. That sort of numbers have appealed to me for some reason. And there was a lot of consternation in like 2014, 2015, that 2015 was going to be the year that blockbusters died that that year a ton of huge movies were set to come out and it was becoming clear that there was according to the press at the time that there was diminishing returns that a lot of this was maybe being debt financed and it was just like this was when it was going to come to a head and from here from after that year moving forward we were going to have fewer blockbusters that did not come to pass the opposite was true once the new star wars sequels came out uh, the Marvel movies ended up blowing up even more than they were blowing up in the mid 2010s. And I don't follow that news as closely as I used to, but I have not seen the same level of consternation pre-COVID over the fate of the movie blockbuster, with the exception of the movie theater industry itself being afraid of Netflix. There's a lot of concern about that, but less so on the actual making of the huge movies. Well, there should be, because I think there's good argument to be made for the fact that not every movie gains something tangible by being watched in a theater. Like I watched Dunkirk, which is a pretty like explosive movie, and I watched it at home. I enjoyed the crap out of it (laughs) just because there exists some universe uh, where I had seen it in theaters where I would have enjoyed it more. Doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it when I watched it at home. I mean, I would probably enjoy that movie more at home, too, but just because my my delicate nerves just couldn't watch the real thing in the real theater without uh, having some kind of panic attack. There's that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also movies that don't rely on the spectacle little women was fantastic uh and i watched it at home book smart was fantastic and i watched it at home was it a palm springs that is that the one that just came out on uh that was supposed to be in theaters but went to hulu and perfectly fine experience uh great movie just as much fun to watch it at home as it would have been in a theater i think the theater has to provide something that the home experience doesn't provide and it needs to compensate for the things about watching in a theater that are worse like some rando sitting next to you doing scene by scene commentary this <laughs> is like oh did you see that and I'm like yeah we're watching <laughs> the same movie I forget what movie it was. It was some action movie. I think it was John Wick, uh, where this dude was just fell asleep um, in the row ahead of me, and I could hear him snoring <laughs> through the entire movie. I don't know how you fall asleep watching John Wick, <laughs> uh, but movie theaters need to provide something that is better than what that doofus took away from <laughs> from my experience. And just being visually big and audibly loud aren't enough to overcome some of the downsides. Yeah, I agree. I I think the primary thing that movie theaters give you is the crowd experience. And that sometimes hurts in in, in ways you're you're saying, but in some way, in sometimes can completely be the defining moment of a film. We don't need to talk about the end of Endgame, but there are scenes at 
the end of Endgame where the crowd reactions made the moment so much more impactful than they would have been without the crowd seeing it for the first time. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of few and far between, though. Agreed. The last time I think the crowd audience really elevated my watching experience was I went to go see Deep Impact in the theater. And this is like <laughs> early 2000s, late 90s, I think. I'm not entirely sure. Wait, is that a movie that people cheer for? <laughs> well... It came out around the same time where a Seinfeld episode came out where George was talking about how he wanted to like yell during movie theaters. I mean, it's kind of like when I was at 10th grade and it's like I watched Schindler's List with my entire 10th grade class and there was definitely an effect. I'm not sure I wanted to go through it again. No, but when when the when the comet impacts Earth, some guy in the audience yelled out quoting the Seinfeld episode, that's got to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the best part right there is I'm literally hearing um, George Costanza's voice in my head. Yeah. <laughs> so that that elevate. I mean, as far as disaster movies go, like Deep Impact, I it was worth the money that I paid for the ticket. Um, it's, it's certainly not the greatest movie in the world, but you know, fun. But the thing that I take away from it isn't Morgan Freeman's performance. It's some rando in the audience just completely breaking the scene. <laughs> well, I mean, definitely for certain movies anyway. I mean, for that movie, definitely works. The, the one we're talking primarily about, like action sort of movies. That's I think everything we've named has been action filled to some extent of different types. The other side of the coin and. I say this somewhat trepidatiously because I tend not to go to movies like this in the theater, but comedies or at the very least comedic moments in movies do, I, in my opinion, get bolstered by a crowd reaction. I have watched a number, particularly in high school, I tried to watch like famous comedies, um, uh, highbrow and lowbrow that I know people loved and watched them on my own just like see what the buzz was all about. And very frequently, I wouldn't find myself laughing and realize that a lot of the time, but then I could watch the same movie again with a group of friends and then really enjoy it and be laughing quite a bit. A similar effect for, for watching in a movie theater. Now, granted, again, I think watching with a significant other or friends is something is, is probably enough in that case. Just a single other person can be enough to give that effect. So you don't necessarily need a full movie theater, but there's something to be gained uh, in, in comedies as well. Yep. And that's all Tom has to say about that. The comet was on a path that could bring it into direct contact with the Earth. That's got a heart. Moving on. So I actually have a little bit of a crisis of... Um, legality that I, I need to know what the right thing to do is in a certain situation. Legality or morality? No, legality. I actually did. Well, I suppose a little bit of both, but let's start, well, let's start with the, well, I think the moral, moral answer is more obvious. So you know that perhaps the most significant uh, law in all of traffic when you are driving is that if there is one cardinal rule you do not break, it's running through the stop sign of a school bus. Uh, okay. I, I feel like there there are plenty of sins that you can commit in traffic, but the number one taboo that everybody's just going to dump on you for 
is driving right through a school bus flashing stoplight or stop sign. But it, it gets a lot more confusing as the road widens. So what do you do when you've got a road that is maybe three lanes on one side and three lanes on the other? And there's a median in between those two roads that's probably like 10, 15 feet wide. Does the opposite side still stop for that school bus that's way on the other side? Googling the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, see, I mean, it's, it's not obvious. And the reason I ask is because I have seen hordes of cars behave extremely differently in the same circumstance from time and time again that I commute. Sometimes when there's this school bus that's dropping off kids at the end of a school day, and I happen to be passing it on my way home, uh, you know, I'll be in a cluster of cars and we'll all stop. And we're like, yep, you know, it's school bus stop sign and we're supposed to stop, you know, regardless. But then there's other times that people just drive right through it. And again, we're talking about a road where it's not that people are driving through right next to it. They're driving through on the opposite side where there is a wide median in between. Are the kids crossing? So I think they would if they could. Like, let me put it this way. There was definitely a time where we all stopped. And I think I did see a kid try to cross the whole road. And then there's other times that none of the cars stopped and we all just kept going. Obviously, no kids crossed because they couldn't. So according to drivesafely.net, uh, except for four states, uh, it is okay if the road has a divider for opposing traffic to continue. Can I guess what those four states are? Yeah, of course. Okay. I'm going to guess Rhode Island. Nope. Damn. Just because it has road in it? You know, that's a great point. I wish I had thought of that. Also completely unrelated to actual <laughs> traffic roads. No, they're spelled the same way, right? No. Okay, let me get Massachusetts. No. Okay, I'm not going to get this. What are the four states? You only have 48 more to guess. Uh, I'll start with the least obvious one, I think, New York State. Really? Okay. Well, I actually should have guessed New York. New York has always been a very um, bureaucracy. That probably has something to do with the city, would be my guess. Uh, I mean, Albany loves to make rules. So, uh, you know, they're, I, they're just rules for everything. Uh, Mississippi, West Virginia, and then Arkansas in the case where the divider is uh, less than 20 feet wide. Huh. Okay. So, so, but those are the, those are the cases where for the most part, you, everybody is supposed to stop. Whereas for all other states in theory, you can just go. Uh, for divided highways, correct. For a divided highway, okay. Does it give a classification for the, the rest of the states on how big the divider has to be? Because dividers are wide and dividers are thin. I, I think the, the road is classified as a divided road um, based off of the municipality in which it's created. Okay. Do you agree with me that I think there is no bigger taboo in traffic rules and decorum than to drive through a school bus stop sign? I feel like driving through a red light is bad. It's not as bad as that. I think driving the wrong way down a highway is pretty bad, too. <laughs> That's true. That's pretty bad. I was. Yeah. When you when you first said, like, I can't think of anything worse than this. I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm not going to. I'm sure I'm going to disagree with the promise. But when then you actually said, I'm like, oh, no, that does actually seem pretty bad. I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to stick to all normal crimes. I mean, obviously, road rage where somebody pulls out a crossbow and <laughs> we watched the same video for our for our uh uh 
five hour pre driving test, didn't we? Uh, maybe. Or did I just talk about that a whole bunch? Crossbows down the road. You know, it was so long ago. I I honestly can't remember if I saw it or if I've just built a memory of you telling me that what it was. And then I thought of it, looking at it, watching it myself. I don't know. So before, because I didn't do driver's ed. Well, I, actually, that's true. You did driver's ed. I did not do driver's ed because of music camp conflicts. And so because of that, I had to go to a five-hour driving uh, hour course, which ended up being four hours because skirting laws is great. And most of that was just watching videos. And one of the videos was about road rage. And in this, there was a video of a church deacon, a 60-year-old little man who got into a fit of road rage with some teenagers, 20-year-old something or other car. And they both ended up pulling over. The church deacon went to the back of his car, pulled out a crossbow. He's a vampire hunter. And shot the person to death. That was a vampire. They filmed... Yeah, it was a vampire hunter. Yeah, of course. They filmed an interview with this guy in jail. No remorse. None whatsoever. Because <laughs> he was a vampire. I mean... <laughs> the deacon shot a vampire. Right. This is like Bell Van Helsing, but... I've never forgotten my lessons about Road Rage, so it did serve that purpose. I, I feel like it's one of those... It's got It's got to be staged. It's got to be staged. How could it not be? I mean, the, the, the number of eccentricities, it's just too much. But I guess the law <laughs> of large numbers, you can always find footage of something crazy. I've been meaning to get a car cam for about four years now. Really? Um, Why? Just about to get around to it. Well, remember we had that accident where we got T-boned at that intersection. And, oh, yeah. Uh, my, I, 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 was, I was pretty heated. And you shot a guy with a crossbow. <laughs> I, I was pretty angry. And, and the thing was, he disputed it. He told the insurance later that it was our fault, which was absolutely not true, but we had no way to prove it. So I feel like I want to go all car cam for the future, just for that one time that something may happen again. It's a good thing he didn't have a crossbow in his car. I think David buried the lead here that he does not know how to drive a car. What? You didn't take driver's ed and you skipped out of the significant portion of the video you were supposed to watch. I watched the whole thing. They let us out four hours and 15 minutes. There was 45 more minutes of content that I was supposed to watch under the laws of New York that was not provided to me. Granted, the five-hour class was primarily meant for people who uh, lost their licenses for reasons of a troubling nature. And I was just a 15-year-old, so... That is a troubling reason. It was an interesting group of people to be with. I don't want 15-year-old David on the road. That's true. It's dangerous. So you you would try to discourage him from coming to Boulder? He can fly. He can fly. Yeah. Okay. I did fly once. And then I drove. You don't live that close to an airport. Things are bigger out here. (laughs) (laughs) The oxygen's a little bit thinner. Everybody just works a little bit slower. It's okay. Yep. Yeah, it's the oxygen that's making people work slower. Exactly. <laughs> well, but it's what is it? It's like it's like three thousand feet higher. Or so, what is it? It's like three thousand, or no, five hundred. I don't know. What, I'm just what's the nickname for Denver? Uh, <laughs> so something high know. city. The mile high. The mile high city. Did I did, did I get that right? It, Was that true? It, it's true. That is the official elevation. Is the emphasis there on the mile or the high? Uh, this nickname was around for a lot longer than legal marijuana. Marijuana. Yeah. So it it is uh, the official elevation is five to eighty feet for Denver. What is the elevation where it becomes a problem? Ten k. Is that right? Am I making that up? It depends person to person. My brother 
Every time I've seen him in the state, he has been sick in some capacity. Hmm. But other people hmm. who come to visit experience no difficulty whatsoever, even at uh, high elevations. My friend Robbie has a great story of, ele- of elevation sickness nearly killing him and, uh, on a hiking trip. That does sound like a great story. I'm glad I told it. Moving on. Moving on. You know, we all grew up with dinosaurs. That's right. We were alive when the dinosaurs were around. And the planets. And the planets. We, we grew up with dinosaurs and we grew up with Pluto. I think in the case of planets, it's a little bit more concrete. How do you teach the planets? You don't teach them that Pluto's a planet anymore. With dinosaurs, I feel like people still quite are, are not quite on board with, you know, the dinosaurs having feathers. What do you think we should be teaching our kids when we teach them about dinosaurs in elementary school this day? Should we just start out with showing them dinosaurs with feathers? Or should we, you know, start with the old, you know, 1950s concept of what dinosaurs looked like and uh, as these, you know, scaly lizards and then sort of explain how our vision has revised itself over time? I think you need to start with explaining the concept of fake news and explaining that you have to be verifying your facts and don't just trust the first thing you read. You need to read from uh, authoritative sources. I mean, does it make you just a little bit sad to know that T-Rex was probably a bird? Not really. Makes me kind of happy. I don't quite understand the that's that's like saying, are you upset to find out that like George Washington was a monkey? But one is true. No, T-Rex isn't a bird. I didn't mean so much in the genetic sense. I just mentioned that T-Rex really actually looked like a feathery large bird. Did it? Well, not with wings, but covered in what what is it? What are lots of feathers called? Plumage? Plumage? Plumage. Plumage. Did it? Zach doesn't agree with your facts. I I I I, I thought it was i could have sworn this is I saw. why i think you should start with teaching fake news because i think you're teaching your child fake news <laughs> no i'm well my kid is still 18 months so i i have some time to get this right i'm not disputing the hypothesis that dinosaurs had something resembling feathers but i think the image that you're conveying is it looked like some big honking a giant chicken chicken with teeth chicken i think chickens have teeth i don't know no they got beaks but just because you have, a, I mean, look at like a penguin mouth. Penguins have teeth. Geese have teeth. Do, do penguins have beaks? Penguins have beaks. Yeah. Yeah, they have beaks. Geese have beaks. Yeah, I guess they do. Do they have teeth? Yeah. I don't know. Do That's the most horrifying picture. <laughs> like just Google open penguin mouth <laughs> and you'll like open penguin mouth. I feel like anytime somebody's like, go find this picture. Just oh Google God, it. those are horrifying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. See, I'm not even going to look <laughs> now. I, I don't want. I don't want to see this. I don't need to see this. I think it gives <laughs> gives pretty good context for Jurassic birds. A penguin doesn't have feathers in the same way that like a peacock has feathers. And I'm not saying that the T-Rex has feathers in the way that a peacock or penguin has those coverings, but that a T-Rex can have something that approximates a feather. And it doesn't have to look, it doesn't have to be completely covered because I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's consensus opinion. Well, and we, I imagine there's very little way to really know what the actual colors were. Right. I'll I'll try to find a picture that I think is uh, absolutely wonderful, which I don't think is the actual way a T-Rex looks. So you two vamp. 
Okay. Well, I read an article in The Atlantic hmm, six months ago about the disputes over how dinosaurs actually died. Um, that there's actually been a pretty fierce fight in scientific communities for decades at this point over whether it was an asteroid or whether it was um, essentially super volcanoes, I think, was the is the other competing theory. Oh, man. Don't mention the super volcanoes. <laughs> that may be my biggest fear. I mean, okay. Hey, you, only need, you only need to make it through another 60 years. I mean... Wait, statistically, that's likely. Where is this? Are you making this number six up? Where is this number six coming from? No, I'm saying 60. you're going to die in six years. Uh, oh, 60. Oh, I thought you said six. I thought there was something that was going to happen in 2026. No. I mean, okay, look, there is always as bad as things get. There's always like that 0.0001% chance that we as a human civilization will rally to the cause and do something to solve this global problem, whether that be climate change or an impending asteroid impact, you know, build a bunch of missiles to blow it out of orbit or something. I don't know. But when it comes to the super volcano, it's like, well, that's it. It was nice knowing you. Just want just do what they did in Star Trek Into Darkness. It'll be fine. Ice bombs. Yeah. Just take everyone's air conditioner, throw it down the pit. It'll freeze it over. Okay, sure. You you accept my premises a lot more in the podcast than you do in real life. What would I say in real life? Probably something more insulting. Here you just kind of agree and move on. Yeah, I maybe this is my whole being the host thing is trying to make me be more civil or something and I need to get past that. Yeah, that's an interesting picture, Zach. So I don't think this is what T-Rexes actually look like. Narrate what I'm looking at, though. So for listeners, if this doesn't get cut, there is an image that I sent that uh, the bottom half of it has what we would historically have thought of when we saw a T-Rex. And there's a shadow border all around uh, that T-Rex. And on the top half of the image, there is uh, what looks like a finch. Yeah. That is about three times the height of a human. That's pretty terrifying. But this is kind of what I was talking about. I mean, we don't know if this is true or not, but has this is this at least a, a theory that hasn't yet not yet been disproven? I don't think that the opinion of T-Rex's feathering or any dinosaur feathering is similar to that of modern day birds. Okay. The one thing that is very clearly true is that the top half of this image clearly needs to be our thumbnail and Apple uh, podcast app. That um, will never happen. Sorry, you can start your own podcast for that. There would be some copyright problems. So, I mean, just casually Googling around, it looks like the the way that people are describing these feathers are halfway between the scales that we thought they had and the feathering that modern day birds have, that they're just elongated scales. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think one of the facts about dinosaurs, and I'm pretty sure this is a fact, I will say, I will stake my nerd reputation that I heard from another nerd that this was probably a real fact, but that the time between us now and T-Rex is a shorter amount of time than the time between T-Rex and Stegosaurus. Oh yeah, I think I've, I've heard something like that too. Sure. And that, that, that Stegosaurus to T-Rex was more in the distant past than T-Rex is to us. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like to use these comparison analogies quite a bit. Um, I, I like to talk about the Great Pyramids with the same analogy, too. And, you know, the pyramids of ancient Egypt are 4,500 years old. 
you know, if you think about that, that means that Jesus of Nazareth is, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago. So that means that the ancient Egyptian pyramids would have been older to Jesus of Nazareth than he is to us. And I find that mind-blowing. And there's our Christian cathedral podcast for you. Yeah, and definitely after I made a big deal about how this was going to be a secular podcast, you know. I think David was onto something when he was he was narrow casting his ideas to fake news, which is pretty thin slice to this administration. But I am of the opinion that you want to teach every subject in the way in which it relates to critical thinking. And so David was going on a little bit about media literacy and about proper researching habits. And I think that it it doesn't need to just apply to sciences, not that he said that it did, but you can use like literature and art to talk about critical thinking as well. And you don't necessarily have the same sort of like revisit past dogma. I guess you might a little bit in like art history about like this is this is the way you do perspective and then renaissance comes around and is like no this is this is how we do perspective now but when you're teaching dinosaurs and you're teaching planets and you're teaching really anything challenging past assumptions asking why we thought a particular way why we changed our thinking in a particular way i think that's relevant um you need to balance it with the critical ingredient of it being exciting so if you make dinosaurs or planets like completely dull uh, in a completely academic exercise of like, this is this is how many miles Voyager has flown. They're probably not going to be terribly interested in that if they're young kids. They probably want to see cool pictures of planets and cool artist renderings of, of dinosaurs. And so there's some amount of pizzazz that you need. Mm-hmm. And then there's a certain amount of How do we apply this discipline in regards to critical thinking? So would you teach, for example, in the case of Pluto, would you actually teach them maybe to start that Pluto is a planet, but then try to build up some tension, having the kids sort of challenge that based on the criteria of what must qualify as a planet and then have them come to their own conclusion? I think having people unlearn things is excruciatingly difficult. Yeah. So I don't think I would intentionally mislead students as fun as that is. And uh, as often as that has occurred to me in my education, I'm just thinking (laughs) about all of my physics uh, where you go into physics 101 or something and they teach you like, this is how this phenomenon works. Then you're in physics 401 and they're like, remember in physics 101 when we told you this, uh, uh, we were lying a lot. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, So I don't think it's it's great to do that because unlearning things is really difficult. There's nothing wrong with approaching it from a historical perspective uh, of saying this is we thought Pluto was a planet and then we changed the definition of what planets are and pluto didn't meet that criteria anymore the, the very apt comparison is how we teach a heliocentric model yeah uh we start by teaching kids that the sun is the center of the solar system because it is and then you go back and give the historical perspective of what humans used to think through copernicus galileo etc getting up to modern day well i think this is sort of where i diverge a little bit 
um, is that I don't think it's terribly valuable to say the sun is the center of the, the solar system because the sun and every other body orbit cocentric points in, in the solar system. This is for most of them, those exist inside the sun, but it's not the center of the sun. But that sort of nuance doesn't really matter so much as like saying that the earth is a sphere is also wrong. It doesn't help <laughs> to say what the earth is. The earth is a geoid. Um, that is not very helpful because it means something that's shaped like the earth. <laughs> uh, so the earth is shaped like something like the earth. Tautologies are us. I know, right? It's, it's really hard because you're like, well, the earth is kind of pear shaped because the amount of water on one side of the hemisphere causes the other side of the hemisphere to bulge a little bit. And then people have in their mind this conception of a pear floating around in space. And it's like, no, <laughs> like if you, if you look at it, you wouldn't be able to tell that it's not a, a sphere. I mean, scientifically, it's not a sphere, but like, I mean, if you look at it, it looks like a sphere, right? Mathematically. You're getting to the point there that it's important to teach to the way that our brain works, which is true to your point of uh, it's hard to unlearn something, that right. our brains are simple things, uh, well, are not great at understanding complex things, I should say. And so we do best at explaining complex things in simplified models first and then adding the nuance on top. So long as you don't want to go to the extreme of you're saying something so simplistic that it's pretty much wrong, but you still start with a simpler model. Yeah. Well, my favorite part about, um, you know, learning about the heliocentric and geocentric models is that, of course, you know, ancient civilization sort of started with the geocentric model earth is in the center everything else moves around the earth and the heavens and then of course the heliocentric model that we all know and love in modern day but then you get to einstein and einstein says yeah both are correct well he's saying like because of the conservation of angular momentum it's uh it meaningless to try to define the center of the universe right and i mean accelerating reference frames you know there, there's lots of different ways of looking at things. I think probably the single most impactful lesson that I ever learned in my physics classes was just that two very contradictory observations can both be equally valid. Well, not observations, but theories. Well, no, no, with observations, uh, like with relativity. So, I mean, there's that classic example of the train moving along the tracks and if you're a passenger on the train and you watch somebody turn on a light bulb, um, and let's say you have a friend who is sit sitting in like you're, so there's a light bulb in the center of a train car, and then uh, you and one other person are standing at opposite ends of the train car. So you both are equidistant from the light bulb in the middle. Somebody turns on the light bulb in the middle, and then theoretically, you both see the light appear at the same instant because you are both equally far from the light bulb, which is in the middle of the train car. But then somebody standing on the ground as the train moves past the two people, as the somebody turns the light bulb in the middle, it turns out that person will observe the light reaching one person at a different time than the light reaching the other person. Because the light has a constant speed, speed of light has a constant speed, and so that person who says the light reached one person faster than the other person, their observation is equally valid to the people in the train car who have an equally valid claim that they both saw the light happen at the same instant. Yeah, I mean, that relies 
on a colloquial definition of contradictory. I don't think that that's contradictory. Yeah, well, I mean, contradictory by layman's terms, I think. Like, I think common right. sense would say that there, there can only be one sequence of events, whereas physics then turns it upside down and says that different sequences, the sequence can happen in a lot of different orders, and they're all just going to happen in ways that are very unintuitive. Sure. This is when it becomes clear, dear listener, that I'm the social scientist and they are the natural scientists. Yep. Yeah, I think I think what I was trying to get at was that like it's not it's not helpful to teach someone the geocentric universe versus the heliocentric universe versus the acentric universe. Um, so much it is to use those ideas to explain the process of scientific advancement. Right. It doesn't benefit anyone to know or it doesn't it doesn't benefit 99% or statistically everyone on the planet to know that the earth revolves around the sun or vice versa if you teach the way in which copernicus comes to decide that he wants to use a mathematical model that puts the sun at the center of the universe because it's easier to describe physical events in the rotation of the planets or the movement of the planets, then you can see how using mathematics to describe physical events can lead to theories that are predictive. And you can do that in case after case after case after case. You can do it with like evolution. You can do it with germ theory, you can do it with whatever about how you had some preconceived notion and due to uh, a rigorous reassessment of your assumptions and adherence to following the data no matter where it leads you, then you can come to another set of circumstances. But it's that process that's important. It's not the A or the B that's important, I don't think. Sure. Well, the part here where I actually do want to intersect or interject is I would we don't have time for it tonight, but I would be I would like to have a conversation with Zach in the future of the relationship of teaching the process of critical thinking in the way you're describing and the consequences of losing a common set of mutually agreed on facts. Um, in society. I don't want to get into that too much because we don't have time for that, but I have. I think that would be a, a fruitful conversation. I really love that topic because I fight with my dad all the time about it. I think that common basis of fact thing is a product of mass media. Well, we definitely need to have this conversation. This will be fun. It real, like really early mass media where you only have like four stations that you listen to. And so you get it. So you, you don't have the democracy of ideas that's out there to tell you that, like, I don't want to go down the alternative facts because that's that's sort of been uh, co-opted by lie that I just want to pretend mm -hmm. is a fact. Um, mm -hmm. But there's there's multiple ways of of thinking about anything. Uh, and so the, the critical thinking is, well, I don't have the entire universe have fa of facts at my disposal, uh, despite what a math problems given might make you think. You, you're always working with an incomplete set of information to work on. And whether that's your own personal ignorance or whether that's, that's mass ignorance. And so how do I take my limited set of experiences and knowledge that is going to be different from everyone else's and work within that. And that's different than how do I work with the truth, which only exists in mathematics and religion and nowhere else. And this is not a Christian podcast after all. No, not a Christian podcast. Fun side story, though. 
Uh, I was once telling Dad about a conversation that Zach and I had about the English language. And to sum up, Zach was saying that English is an evolving language and that you can have, you know, lots of things be true that weren't necessarily true, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years ago about the language. And so I told Dad this, who is an English teacher and is much more concrete in saying English is a very clear set of rules that have been established for so many decades. And after I told him about Zach, he said, man, that kid would have really bugged me in class. <laughs> That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.